0: Welcome, my friends, to this edition of the History of Christianity. We're on part 39 today. We're going to be looking at the time period that comes after the Middle Ages. We're now in a time of Renaissance. And today we'll be looking at Renaissance and Humanism. We begin by looking at the latter course of Scholasticism. Scholastic theology came to be marked by two characteristics. So we've talked about this time period during the Middle Ages, this age of Scholasticism dominated theology. And as it comes now to a close, it was dominated by two characteristics. One was its constant search for ever subtler questions to pose. The second was an increasing rift between philosophy and theology, between what reason can discover and what can be known only by divine revelation. Remember, we talked about scholasticism. When it began, there was a prevailing thought that there were things that God had certainly revealed And they were a result of divine revelation. We read about those in Scripture. But there are also things that God didn't have to reveal necessarily. He may have revealed them also. But the idea was that just reason itself, human reason, could come to some conclusions about the things of God so that while they may have been revealed by divine revelation, they also could be discovered by human reason. Thomas Aquinas held that there was a basic continuity between faith and reason. Certain revealed truths could also be known by reason. So Thomas Aquinas was one of the last theologians to hold this traditional view, at least during the period of scholasticism, that there's a part to play between both divine revelation and reason. But after his time, after he died, others began to question this thinking. One of those guys was John Duns Scotus. He was a Franciscan theologian, and he disagreed that such doctrines as the immortality of the soul or divine omnipresence could be proven true by the sole proper use of reason. Scotus said that you can believe these things because God has revealed them. He didn't doubt that they were true, but he did say, he did doubt that human reason outside of divine revelation could ever come to these conclusions on its own. At most, he believed reason could show that these doctrines could be possible. So he was willing to say, well, human reason might lead you to the conclusion that at least it's a possibility, but it couldn't lead you to the conclusion that was an absolute fact. Only divine revelation could do that. This thinking became prominent in the 14th and 15th centuries. So during this time, there was a real pushback on the idea of human reason being able to bring you to a lot of the material that we know has been revealed by God. Their push was against human thinking being a real way of coming to these truths. It had to be revealed by God. Now, again, remember, these guys are not saying they don't believe these truths. They Scotus was not arguing against the immortality of the soul or against divine omnipresence. He's just saying that you can't, in your own mind, come to these conclusions on your own, at least in certainty. You might be able to say it's possible, but you couldn't say, yes, I know this to be true. It only could come through divine revelation. William of Ockham and his disciples believed that human natural reason can prove nothing regarding God. So he even went further. There's absolutely nothing that a human being can come up with on their own through their own use of reason that could prove anything about God. Again, not saying that there couldn't be some ideas about God or that you might think that there are some things about God that could be possible, but you couldn't be certain. It couldn't prove it. The only way to prove it was just the fact that God revealed that it was true. They believed God's absolute power knows no bounds. Nothing is above the absolute power of God, including reason, nor the distinction between good and evil. Otherwise, God's power is limited. So these guys really pushed for the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the all power of God. And they took that to a a very strong conclusion. And that conclusion was there's nothing that's beyond the power of God. And that includes reason nor the distinction between good and evil. Otherwise, God's power is limited. It is incorrect to say God always does good, but rather whatever God does is good. So the idea here is that good is not an end unto itself the idea of good the concept of good is not something that binds god but rather what god does is good so you can tell these these theological ideas these the scholasticism that's coming about now it's gotten to the point where there's a lot of argument about things that while in an academic sense might be interesting it's really not very practical it doesn't it doesn't help you in your basic christian life It doesn't matter for a Christian as far as their walk with God and developing Christ's likeness in their life. It doesn't really matter about the answers to some of these questions. They can be interesting questions to ask, but you have to wonder, is that really something that's necessary? That's kind of a conclusion that eventually comes from this, but we'll go on before we get to that point. This meant that all the traditional arguments that theologians had used to try to prove that a doctrine was reasonable lost their power. So basically what we're down to now is there's no real apologetics other than just to say God said it. You, you you can't argue for something being true. You can't argue for things about God to be true. You can't go to a person and appeal to their own human reason to get them to a place where they would be willing to accept these things. Those arguments are out the window. You don't you can't use them because they're not valid. You can only go through the fact that God divinely revealed that these things were true. And that was the point that they got to with scholasticism. As I continue on during this time, one example is the doctrine of incarnation. Anselm and theologians following him had claimed that the incarnation of God in a human being was reasonable since humankind's debt before God being infinite could only be paid by God made human. So you have to understand when they're talking about these things being reasonable, it was accepted at that time that everyone would agree on some basic tenets. And so if you take those things to be for granted that they're true and everybody believes them, then they were saying that it's reasonable for a person to come to the conclusion that there had to be God made flesh because sin that humans had committed created a debt Before God, that was infinite. It couldn't be paid by a regular human being. There's nothing we could do in and of ourselves to pay this debt. It was an infinite debt. Therefore, the only way it could ever be paid was for the infinite divine God to come and be made into a human to pay the debt. So a human had to pay it, but a regular human couldn't. So it could only be the infinite God to pay the infinite debt in the flesh of a human being. And so in their minds, that's reasonable that you would expect that. You shouldn't expect anything else. Well, the latter scholastics didn't agree with that. Theologians in the 14th and 15th century argued that this cannot be true when you take into account God's absolute power. And here's where it gets really interesting. Potentially, God could have canceled our sin debt or simply declared that humans are not sinners. So here's the argument. The argument from their side is God is absolutely powerful and he is above everything. He is so powerful, in fact, that there didn't even need to be a Jesus come and die for our sins. There didn't even need to be a a God made flesh come and give atonement for sin. God could have, because of his infinite power, he could have just said debt paid. There is no debt. You're all fine. Come on and join me. Or he could have just said, "You know what? What you're doing is not sinful. That you're not sinners, you're all you're all pure. There isn't anything that God's not above. So he's not even bound by these concepts of sin and and separation between him and humans because of sin. God's above all that stuff. So then why in the world did he need to send his son to die? Why in the world Does there need to be human beings go and spend eternity in hell? Well, the Scholastics had an answer for that as well. We are saved by Christ's merits, not because it had to be so, but simply because God decided that it would be so. So this thinking is very strong on the sovereignty of God, almost maybe to some ends that we probably are not all that comfortable with. And this would be one of them, at least in my view that God just decided that's the way it was going to happen. It could have happened any other way. He could have just waved his hand and it'd all be gone. He could have said to Adam and Eve, you're forgiven. I'm putting you back in the state you used to be in. All that's wiped away, and we can start back over from where we are. We don't have to have a world corrupted by sin. We don't have to have a human race that carries sin down as its line is passed on. We don't have to have millions and billions of people spend eternity in hell. We can just say it's all back to the way it was. But God decided he didn't want to do it that way. That's a hard thing to think about. Why would some? Why would a God that would do something like that not be considered to be evil? Well, again, remember, the scholastic says whatever God does is good in and of itself. It's just by definition. If God does it, that's good because God defines what's good. He's above all that. So it doesn't matter what God does. If God does this, if he decides to just arbitrarily condemn millions of people to hell, then that's good. It's fine. Their thinking was so strong on the all power of God, on the nature of God being so far above us, we can't really ever understand it, and his sovereignty, that they were willing to say some things that to me are, are difficult to accept. I I don't see God in those terms, but obviously, I mean, we're talking about the 14th and 15th century. This is a long-standing idea in Christianity, and this thinking was prevalent at the time, and there's still, again, some part of it that goes on today within Christian circles. So it's an interesting, it's interesting to look at where some of this stuff kind of got started, and how it still kind of carries on uh, to this day. And there's also people that don't agree with it to this day. So the purpose of theologians at this time was to praise the glory of God above all else. And I think that's where we have to give, even if we do have a problem with some of this thinking, and again, even our brothers and sisters today that may think differently, whichever school that's in, it doesn't matter if it's uh, being more of a, a free will person or being more of a sovereignty of God person or somewhere in between or whatever else there may be. Uh, Christians have big disagreements about the perseverance of the saints, the fact that once you're saved, you're always saved, and then those who think that you can lose your salvation. Also, there's huge disagreements about end times and how that's all going to go down. We have to remember that we need to give grace to one another because what is the purpose here? These theologians just wanted to praise the glory of God above all else. They saw God as being so great that... They feared even in trying to use human reason, we were going to be making mistakes because we can't reason our way into things that only God could give us. People want to get this stuff right. They want to be correct about God. People that want to give God great praise and glory for His awesomeness and His might and His sovereignty, there's nothing wrong about that motive. We may disagree with some of the conclusions that are drawn. That's okay. Through these disagreements, these disagreements have been going on for years. Almost from the very beginning, people did not agree on the text and scripture. And we see that as we've developed through this history of Christianity, there's always been a lot of disagreement about these things. But what we shouldn't do is throw our brothers and sisters to the curb, understand that we all, for the most part, there's some exceptions, but we all have a heart for God. We all want to be correct. We just aren't going to all see it the same way. And that's okay. And while we look back on these scholastics and we can kind of see some negative things about their approach, especially as we continue to go through this, we have to at least give them the benefit of the the credit that they just had a heart for the glory of God. And they wanted to promote how God how great God is. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, even if we don't all agree on the exact same points. This meant that the question of authority was of vital importance at this time. If a doctrine cannot be proven true or false by reason then one can only make such determinations on the basis of infallible authorities. Occam believed that both the pope and a universal council could err so he's saying even what the pope says even what one of these universal councils says you can't even trust that it's not an infallible authority they're human beings they can make mistakes only the bible was infallible later many became convinced that a universal council held that authority so there's been disagreements even about the Pope, the councils, whether or not they could be in, make mistakes, whether or not everything they say is correct. Occam said no, that they are prone to make mistakes, and only the Bible is infallible. That's a view that would very much fit into Protestantism, the idea that the Bible is the only source for faith and practice. We can listen to what other people have to say, but if we want to find the one place that we know is never going to be wrong, it's always going to be, what God intends in his revealed word is the Bible. But remember, again, people at this time didn't necessarily have free access to the Bible. So whether or not you want to say that's true, it didn't really matter because a lot of the people were relying on these church leaders anyway. During the last centuries of the Middle Ages, scholasticism provoked a negative reaction among devout people. The complexity of the academic theology of the time brought many to long for a return to the simplicity of the gospel. And I think this is so important, even today that we realize this. We have definitely very developed theology at this day. We have over 2,000 years of Christian history, and it's good to study it. We need to be students of the Bible, maybe not necessarily students of academic theology, but students of the Word of God. The theology helps us. Remember that right off the bat in Christianity, things started going off the rails because there was heretical information being sent out there that didn't line up with what the revealed truth was that had been passed down from the teachings of Jesus through his disciples. So we need those guidelines. We need those guideposts. We need doctrine. We need theology. It's important, but it can't be the main thing. The Bible was written in the language of the people because it was intended to be a message from God that everyone could understand. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you. We certainly do. We have to have that part. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the ideas contained within are not to be so complex that you have to have a PhD to understand them. The Bible, the revealed truth of God, is meant for everyone. And we can, as human beings, mess it up by getting our own thoughts and ideas in there and making it all so complex. The Bible itself and the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of what God has revealed about himself, needs to be paramount above all this other stuff. And the people at the time, they finally had enough of the scholastic thinking. This is too far. Some of these questions are irrelevant. We don't need to answer. It doesn't matter anyway. And they're not questions that are ever anything that God says anything about. It's just people taking the, the things that God intended for us to know and drawing conclusions from them that may be reasonable and may not be. And so people long for the complete, for the simplicity of the gospel. I want to read to you a quote. And this is from a book that was referenced. I think it may have been the last episode. I could be wrong about that. But it's a book called The Imitation of Christ. It's a book that was written that's been, that's carried on through the years. And this was more of a let's get back to what really matters type of thing. So let me, let me read this quote from the book, The Imitation of Christ. Quote. What good is it for you to be able to discuss the Trinity with great profundity if you lack humility and thereby offend the Trinity? Verily, high-sounding words do not make one holy and just, but a life of virtue does make one acceptable to God. It is better to feel repentance than to be able to define it. Were you to memorize the entire Bible and all the sayings of the philosophers, What good would this be for you without the love of God and without grace? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity except loving God and serving only God." So this was a reaction against the academic mindset of the day. It doesn't do you any good to be able to define every word in the Bible, to be able to talk for hours theologically and with great knowledge about theology, to be able to explain things in a way that nobody else could understand. To be able to define where it doesn't do you any good if it's not something that's really true and, and alive in your life. If if all of your life has to do with just the academic pursuit of religion and Christianity, then you've missed the most important aspect of it—that there is a God that you're serving, that you are to de- to be able to define forgiveness. Okay, but you are to live in forgiveness. To be able to define grace is great, but we are to live in grace. We are to walk in God's way. We are to have a relationship with him. And so this is a reaction against this complexity. Let's move back towards the other side of the coin, not to go off the other end, the deep end on that side, but to stay somewhere in the middle. And so that was kind of the trend now. Let's move back away from some of the academia that's taken over our faith and let's get back to the simplicity. And that was what was going on at this time as people were moving out of this middle age time period into the renaissance era. We also find during this time a return to classical learning. At the same time in which scholasticism brought theology into ever increasing complexity, there was also a movement to revive the glories of classical antiquity. So this is the renaissance part. This is what people really wanted at that time. This intellectual and artistic movement that started in Italy and spread to the rest of Western Europe received the name of Renaissance. People saw the preceding thousand years as a dark time in history. Thus, it became known as the Middle Ages. The very name Renaissance implied a negative judgment on the preceding age. So you're probably thinking, what does the very name Renaissance mean? You may not already know the answer to this, but it means rebirth. So there's a rebirth of classical learning. And by saying that you even need a rebirth, then you're saying that there's something bad going on already that needs to end. And let's get back to the way it used to be. So there's a judgment being put on this preceding era known as the Middle Ages. And we've talked about this enough now. You know there's a lot of negative stuff about the Middle Ages. You didn't even have to listen to the study to know that. When we learn about the Middle Ages in school, we learn mostly about the bad stuff about it and how there was a lot of not great things going on at that time. But we also have to remember this that period of history known as the Renaissance also drew from the centuries immediately preceding it. So it didn't just go back to classical antiquity, it couldn't do that. They didn't even know everything about that time period. It borrowed from things that were learned, art that was going on, architecture that was happening during the Middle Ages as well. So it's not just an erasure of those Middle Ages, but it is a very true that many of its main figures made every effort to promote a rebirth of ancient civilization. They wanted to get back to the time that they thought was better than the time in which they had just come out of. And honestly, in a lot of ways, that's true, but not in every way. The revival of antiquity had many advocates. One was the Italian poet Patrac, who preferred to write in Latin many began copying and circulating manuscripts of ancient Latin authors. So this time period in which there's a lot of people now going back and writing in Latin, the reason for it was because they were trying to bring back that classical age. And during that age, they wrote primarily in Latin. There's certainly a lot of Greek, but there was Latin as well. So they're getting back to this time that they think was better than the time they were in. And because of their desire to kind of rebirth that that classical age, they wanted to write and read Latin. When Constantinople fell in 1453, Byzantine exiles flooded Italy. They brought with them a knowledge of classical Greek literature. This resulted in a literary awakening that began in Italy and spread beyond the Alps. So we've talked about Constantinople finally falling, the Byzantine Empire ending. And when that happened, a lot of the people left because they were being taken over by the Turks. And they came to Italy, and they brought with them this knowledge that the people in Italy really wanted. They already were interested in that classical age. Well, all of a sudden, here comes all these people, and they've got that literature. They've got some of that knowledge that wasn't out there in Italy and Western Europe at that time. And that brought about an awakening. They began to really want to learn more and more. It started in Italy, but then it spread to the rest of Western Europe. And so we get to the period of time known as the Renaissance. The interest in antiquity also manifested itself in the arts. Painters, sculptors, and architects found inspiration in the pagan art of the classical age. All of this is important because it does affect things that are going on in the church, as we'll see. But people are starting to want to go back to that classical age, and that was a time before Christianity was widely accepted. So this was a pagan time. And there's a lot of interest in the art of that time, the literature of that time, the stories about the old gods, and there's a reawakening of this thought that had been kind of put away because people just didn't have access to it, and now it's starting to come back. The awakening of interest in classical learning came along at the time of the invention of the printing press, so this was another way that it was able to spread as it did because now printed material was able to get out there. At first, the printing press was seen as an excellent medium of communication among scholars and for duplicating the writings of antiquity. In spite of this, the printing press did have an impact on the literature of the renaissance by making books more accessible and by introducing the discipline of textual criticism. The printing press, it didn't affect the common people as much as you would have thought at first it was more or less used among the intellectual set the scholars and for duplicating these old writings that they were very interested in so the the effect of it while you would think immediately it would have mass effect on people it didn't right away of course eventually it did but it did have an impact on the literature of the time because it did make books more accessible, so that was a big deal. But it also introduced the discipline of textual criticism. And this is very important in the development of Christianity in the Western world. The purpose of textual criticism was to apply all the resources of historical criticism to the task of restoring the works of antiquity. Soon, textual criticism would be used to form critical editions of the New Testament. So let me take just a moment and explain to you what textual criticism is. This is a discipline that is a study of ancient texts that's end goal is to try to bring back as close to the original text as you can get. Now, you may not know this, I think probably most people know this by now, but you may not, and that's fine. But we don't have any copies of these ancient texts in existence today, any original copies. There are some people that think that somewhere out there, there are the original writings of the New Testament, that we've got those. But if you think about it, you'll understand why that couldn't happen. Obviously, there wasn't a printing press at that time. A lot of the stories about Jesus were first passed down orally. Eventually, they were written down. But those writings no longer exist, at least not the originals. And the reason they don't exist is obvious. They were written on scrolls that would deteriorate over time and could not last. So, And this was existing certainly way before the New Testament was written. What did you do to preserve ancient writing? You had to copy it. And so there were people employed that did nothing but copy texts. And they would make as many copies as they felt they needed. And then once those texts, those copies no longer were good or started to deteriorate, somebody else would come along and write them, would copy them. And that process went on over thousands, over hundreds of years, over a thousand years. So you know that there's no way you can copy anything as even a probably a short letter, but certainly like even the shortest book of the New Testament. You can't copy that hundreds and hundreds of times without there being some discrepancies in the copies and realize it was copied way more than that. It was copied in all parts of the world, multiples and multiples and multiples of times, copy after copy, after copy, after copy. And it's not hard for us to understand there'd be some discrepancies. Let me give you an example of how this can be illustrated pretty easily. Some of you, when you were growing up, may have played the telephone game. If not, then you probably at least heard of it, but let me explain what it is. It's very simple. You get in a circle, and one person decides on a phrase. So let's say the phrase is, we, we go to war next Tuesday. So they whisper in the ear of the person beside them that phrase. Well, then that person, whatever they heard, they whisper it in the ear of the next person, and it goes around the circle until the last person whispers into the ear of the person that originally made the statement what they last heard. And almost with that, I've never heard of it being played. I've never played where there wasn't, the the message wasn't different from the original. And typically it is wildly different. Like you might whisper, we go to war next Tuesday. And by the end of the line, you get back in your ear, I like bananas. I mean, it's just something completely different than what you said. And that's just from whispering in the ears of a few people and going around a circle in the in the same room in the same given time. So if we can't even correctly reproduce that, how would you think you could reproduce these copies without there being some things that get into the text that weren't originally there? So some of the things that would happen would be that words might be slightly changed. So I'll take the example of the New Testament, but understand textual criticism goes on all ancient literature. But let's say there's a copy of the text where Paul, for instance, writes write something about God. He says, the great, great Lord God... Somebody else that wrote that might write the great or the mighty Lord God. So you've got a word difference there. Now, theologically, does it make any difference which one of those words is correct? No, it really doesn't. Uh, But you would like to get it as close to the original as you can. Another thing that would happen is some scribes, for whatever reason, thought that they wanted to line up the writings of Scripture to make them more, to more strongly hold the doctrines of the church's doctrine developed. And so there would be things that would be written in and that would be added into the text. And we know basically a lot of those. If you read a modern version of scripture, you might see in the New Testament, you might see some part of the text that is bracketed or in some way highlighted. And typically what that means is that part is in question about whether it was in the original text. Uh, One place that's very uh, well known is the end of the book of Mark. The stuff in there that you read about people picking up snakes and them drinking poison and being fine, none of that was in the original text. That was added later. It's almost certain that that's the case. And so it makes you wonder, Well. Man, what, what do we have as far as the Bible goes? What we have is a very strong text. And one of the ways that that has been confirmed is through textual criticism. Going back and looking at all these fragments of all these pieces of the text of the New Testament that have been copied over hundreds and hundreds, over a thousand years, we have found that while there are definitely discrepancies, while there are definitely some things that you find in one text that's not in another, There's not one thing that directly refutes any of the theology of the Bible. There's nothing that's crazy out there. There's not one text that says Jesus is the son of God and another text that says he he was just a human being. There's nothing like that out there. So we can be very comfortable with the text that we have because of the textual criticism that's taken place. And we can also be more comfortable that we have a text that is as close to the original as we can ever get. You're never going to get it 100% for any of these things. But as far as ancient literature goes, the Bible stands head and shoulders above most any other ancient text as far as having a lot of different material to work with and it being close to the original source. So textual criticism helped. But it also opened some eyes up and it made there be some questions about some texts, not necessarily the Bible, but some other texts that the church was using. The discovery of a great number of mistakes in ancient texts led some to doubt the authenticity of some of the texts themselves. One example is the Donation of Constantine, in which the emperor supposedly gave the popes jurisdiction over the West. So there's this writing that the popes used to prove that they should have jurisdiction over the West because they said, well, look, Constantine, who brought, he was the emperor that brought Christianity in, he said that we should, and we've got this right and to prove it. Well, the scholar Lorenzo Vallo studied the document and came to the conclusion that its style and vocabulary showed that it was much later than the time of Constantine. So this is one of the things that textual criticism will do. They will study a text and look at the writing style, look at, the vocabulary that's used, the types of words, and you can conclude some things about the text that, you know what, we've always thought this text was written at this year, but if you look at the style and vocabulary, it probably couldn't have been because we don't find other writings that use that, so it's probably later. And you find that. Now, understand this with textual criticism. This is something I said earlier. These are educated guesses. You, because there is no copy of the original, you can make some really great guesses about it and probably be 99 percent correct but there's still you have to at least say there's still one percent whatever percentage you want to put on even if it's a 0.1 there's still always the chance that you're not correct because you're using some great principles but what if this text for instance was one of the first examples of a text that used that style and used that vocabulary, and others started started using it from that. Again, is that very likely? It's almost 100% unlikely, but there's still that one you know 0.1% chance. So it's a great discipline. It's very necessary, but we also have to realize that it's not perfect. It's not an exact science. It is at some point using rules to make, to draw conclusions that cannot 100%. Be verified, But again, this guy was able to take this text and look at it and say, there's no way this was written during the time of Constantine. They weren't using these words, they weren't using this style then. And the findings of these studies did not circulate among the masses, but stayed with the intellectual aristocracy. You might be thinking, well, why weren't the popes pushing back on this? Well, they weren't pushing back on it because it wasn't out there. It was just among academic people, so they didn't care. The common person didn't know about that this text might not be legitimate. But eventually that changed. It would take some time for the notion to spread that Christianity as it existed was not what it had always been and that a return to the sources was necessary. This notion became a contributing factor to the Protestant Reformation. So we've talked about the seeds that have been planted through the years that brought us to the Protestant Reformation. This is just another one. This realization among the people that, wait a minute, all this stuff that we've been taught is correct, all these things we have, even about these texts that are out there, they're not necessarily correct. In fact, there's some big questions about when this stuff was even written. So we need to go back to the original, the scripture, and we need to get it as close to the original as it can be. And we need to ask some serious questions about what the way we're practicing Christianity if that lines up with the way that it was intended to be practiced. And that was a huge question of the Protestant Reformation. During this time, there was also a new vision of reality. Italy was going through a period of prosperity, giving them financial resources for erecting great buildings and filling them with art. Sculptors, painters, and architects flocked to the great city of Italy. This is going to affect things that are going on in the church. The nobles and bourgeois who paid for their creation wanted the works of art to focus on human beings. Thus, art, which historically had been devoted to religious instruction and God's glory, began to focus attention on human achievements. So there's a movement now to move away from great works of art being a way of training people religiously. Now there's a focus on celebrating the achievements of human beings at this time. It's a humanist time. It's a time in which the human beings are being celebrated and what humans have accomplished and what their potential is to accomplish. Here's an example, the Adam painted by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel embodied the Renaissance view of what it means to be fully human, born to create and leave one's imprint in, on the world. Some examples before this time of, of paintings of Adam would have shown him as being very frail or being very weak or being, you know, guilt-ridden from his from a sin. At this time when you look at that painting on the Sistine Chapel, of Adam receiving the touch of God, it Adam's not depicted that way at all. And it's because of the thinking about what human beings could accomplish at this time. Leonardo da Vinci had the same vision. His goal was to be the universal man. I guess now we call it the Renaissance man because of this time. While known mostly as a painter, he also did significant work in engineering, jewelry, ballistics, and anatomy. And so the movement at the time was to be an expert on all things, to have a little bit of knowledge about everything, and to even have more than just a little bit of knowledge, but to be proficient in it. And Leonardo da Vinci was a guy that actually was able to do some of that. Not completely successful in everything, but certainly was an example of what the ideal was at the time. The Renaissance period generally held a vision of humanity as having unlimited capabilities, both of good and for evil, And it tended to highlight the good part that human beings ultimately have unlimited ability to do great, great things. So it was a very optimistic time and it was a very challenging time for people to rise above where they had been in the Middle Ages and accomplish great things again. So how does all this matter to the history of Christianity? Well, it affected the leadership of the church, particularly when you take into account that the the pinnacle of the leadership, the the papacy, is located in Italy. And so the things that are happening at this time in Italy are going to greatly affect what's going on in the church, and we see that. The Renaissance not only brought a time of great prosperity to Italy, but also a time of upheaval. At this time, Eugene IV was pope. Starting with him, the papacy embraced the goals and ideals of the Renaissance until sometime after the onset of the Protestant Reformation. So culturally, what's going on out in the world comes into the church and affects the church. Rather than the church affecting the culture the way it had been, now that's about to change and the reverse is happening. The culture is now coming in and greatly affecting the church and the leadership of the church. Some were patrons of the arts, attracting to Rome the best artists to adorn the city with palaces, churches, and monuments. Some of these popes, they were patrons of the arts and they wanted the best artists to be there in the church. Other popes were interested in literature, greatly enlarging the papal library. So they became very interested in the literature that was out there at the time. Still others served as warlords, spending most of their time in military campaigns. There are also those who sought to increase their power through intrigue and diplomacy. This is not a great time for the church as far as its leadership goes. There's a lot of corruption And there's a lot of people that are ambitious and are trying to get everything that they can for themselves. And we see that in these popes. Most of them were captivated by the spirit of the age, showing a love of pomp, despotic power, and sensual pleasure. So what is happening during the Renaissance as far as it goes with the church? Well, at least in the higher echelons of the leadership, it's not necessarily having a great influence on the popes and the leaders of the church. So let's look at these popes. Nicholas V succeeded Eugene IV. He tried to gain political dominance for Rome over other Italian states. He also attempted to turn the city into the intellectual capital of Europe. So as we see through a lot of these, there's going to be a big push to bring uh, art, to bring the modern things into the church, into the city. But also for many of these popes, there's a big push to try to gain political dominance. And some of that was by going to war, we'll see. But there's a lot of political stuff going on. There's a lot of trying to gain power that goes on in this time. There's a lot of corruption that goes on. And there's certainly a lot of wanting to bring this artistic mindset, these artists, these sculptors, let's bring them in. Let's get them involved in what we're doing here. the III followed. He spent more time in military campaigns than his religious duties. During his reign, nepotism reached new heights. So we see a lot of corruption at this time. Nepotism, bringing family in to take high-ranking posts was a big deal. It happened almost all throughout this time period. And there's also, again, a lot of these popes that wanted to go to war to gain more power, and a lot of them did that. Pius II was the last of the Renaissance popes to take his office seriously. So these three guys, they while they were not doing great, at least they did try to do the duties that they were supposed to do in the religious sense. Well, the guys that come after Pius II, they don't care about any of that at all. They completely turn away from their duties as being leaders in the church and put themselves out there as more political figures and more cultural figures and also just enjoying and living it up. Paul II was primarily interested in collecting works of art, particularly jewelry and silver. So he wanted to collect all this artwork, really valuable items. He also kept concubines who were publicly acknowledged in the papal court. So here we have the church leader, the pope, who's supposed to be celibate, just like all the rest of the church leaders, and he's got concubines. He's got the women around and it wasn't just kind of like a you know a wor- the worst kept secret or everybody knew and kind of you know turned the other way or whatever. It was just acknowledged they knew that he had these concubines and he didn't care. and obviously the rest of the leadership in the papal court didn't care either and they went right along with it and we see that going on from this time too. Sextus IV bought the papacy by promising gifts and privileges to the cardinals. So that's a great way to start. You bought out these people that elect the pope so that you can get the position. His reign was filled with corruption and nepotism. Not a surprise there. It started with it and it ended with it. Innocent VIII made a solemn vow not to name more than one member of his family to high office. So his promise, people were starting to realize, oh boy, we're going back to this deal where all these popes are bringing in their family. And he promised, he said, you know what, guys, if you elect me, I'll, I'll bring in one. Give me one, but I won't do any other. Okay, that's a great deal. Man, these other guys have been bringing in everybody. If you just get one, then we're actually doing really well. But as soon as he took power, he declared that since papal power was supreme, he was not bound by his oath. So he's saying, you know what, now that I've got this office, I don't have to do that anymore because my power now is puts me in a position above where I was before, and so I don't have to honor anything I said. I'm in the supreme authority position now. So he was the first pope to acknowledge his illegitimate children. So he's doing the stuff this rest of these people are doing, but he's actually acknowledging, not just that he has the concubines or whatever, but his illegitimate kids as well. And a bunch of those kids were involved in the family business, which became the sale of indulgences. And it was a shameless business proposition that he used to enrich his family. He also ordered that Kristen be purged of witches leading to the deaths of hundreds of innocent women. so just all around a great guy I mean he he didn't do it doesn't seem like he did anything that was good. He started off with a lie. he lived however he wanted to live and and dared anybody to say anything about it, especially. Uh, having illegitimate children and trying to actually bring them in, he sold indulgences as a way to enrich his family. And then, for good measure, he went out and killed a bunch of innocent women for whatever reason. So, banner, banner pope there with this guy. But actually, he wasn't even the worst one. Alexander the Sixth bought off the cardinals and became the next pope. So he does the same thing, and under him, papal corruption reached its peak. So he was even worse. And you can understand why each pope is getting progressively worse and he becomes the worst of them all. His concubines, who are legally the wives of others in his court, bore him several children whom he acknowledged publicly. So he takes everything a step further. He not only has concubines and he not only has illegitimate children that he acknowledged publicly, but he is doing that with the wives of people in his court. I mean, this is as bad as it gets. Can you imagine? This is the guy that's supposed to be the closest one to God in all of Christianity, and he's living like the worst heathen out there. The prestige of the papacy suffered greatly under his reign. Well, no joke. Pius III succeeded him, and this was a guy that actually got elected because he wanted to bring reform in, but unfortunately he died after only being the pope for just 26 days. So that brings us to Julius II. And you may be thinking, well, Julius, he didn't take his name from a Christian saint like most of these guys did. Nope. He took his name from Julius Caesar. So that can tell you a little bit about what his mindset was. During his time as Pope, Michelangelo finished painting the Sistine Chapel and Raphael decorated the Vatican with frescoes. So we have some beautiful art taking place there. But Julius didn't really care about that so much. He was just interested in making war. He wanted to be a Julius Caesar type, go out and conquer everything. This is the church. This is the leader of Christianity here we're talking about. That's that's what he was concerned with. And then that brings us to Leo X. Leo X was a patron of the arts. His passion for the arts overshadowed any religious or pastoral concerns. His great dream was to complete the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. In order to finance the project and also to do other things he wanted to do, he sold indulgences. This is the tie-in that we get with the Protestant Reformation. This sale under Leo X of indulgences, provoked the protest of Martin Luther, which means that Leo X was the pope when the Protestant Reformation began. So here we are now. We've made it to the dawn of the Protestant Reformation. These are the things that are taking place right as the Protestant Reformation is about to break out. And this guy, Leo X, he's just following the lead of the popes that came before him. He wanted to do an art project. And so in order to get the money together to do all these things he dreamed about, to lavish himself and the higher-ups in the church with all these beautiful things. He sold indulgences, and that got this guy, Martin Luther, irritated. Wasn't the only thing, but he didn't like it. And that helped spark the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So we're at that time now. We're on episode 39. I told you last week, or maybe a couple weeks ago, we're going through 40. So next week, we're going to turn away from this time. We're kind of at the end of this period. We're right at the doorstep of the Protestant Reformation. But we're going to look at one other topic, and that is colonial Christianity. The spread of Christianity through colonialism. So as people from Western Europe began to colonize the rest of the world, they brought Christianity with them. So we want to look at some of the things that were taking place as a result of that. It's relevant for this time period. And that'll be next week. That's episode 40. So we'll do that. I'm also planning, I've still got to make sure I've got time to do this, but I'm planning on making a bonus episode, which would be the history of Christmas. That'll be, it's not in our 1 through 40 series, but it'll be a bonus episode that it happens to be Christmas time right now. So I think it'll be good and interesting to learn about some things about the history of Christmas. So I plan to do that as well. Then we're going to take a little bit of a break, but I, I told you I'd not make it a commitment yet, but I'm ready to do that. I've made the decision that I am going to continue with a second series, and that will be the dawn of the Protestant Reformation through the modern ta- days. Now, I don't know how far into modern days we'll get to. We'll definitely go through the Reformation period time and we'll go through several years after that. We'll see whether we how far we make it after that. But I want to do that. I've had enough people ask for it. I think it is very interesting. A lot of this stuff that we've studied so far is very much church history, but it's very much Catholic church history, which nothing wrong with that to know it because it is where even as Protestants, where we came from. And so it's important to know, but I think those of you listening that are Protestants, and I know people from our church that are non-denominational church but still Protestants, that's our tradition, where we came from, and we want to know more about that stuff. So I think it's important, and I think it's interesting for everyone. So I'm going to continue this series on into the new year. I don't know when I'll start. I'm going to take a little bit of a break because I just need to go back and kind of, now that I've done this once, I know how I need to outline this. It'll make it a little bit easier. So I'll take a little bit of a break, but we'll be back soon. Next week, we've got one more episode, then probably a bonus episode, and then I'll have more information for you about when the next series will start, and we'll go through with that, and hopefully you'll stick with me through that and enjoy it as well. So thank you once again for staying on for this long episode. I am so thankful to be where we are. We've done a great walkthrough of the history of Christianity. Of course, we haven't studied everything we could. We've done a broad brush approach, but we've seen some major things. I do appreciate those of you that have been with me through this study, and I hope that you'll stick with me one more week and then possibly even on to a new series. Again, thank you for being here today and God bless.